Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with Tish Harrison Warren, Anglican priest and author of The Liturgy of the Ordinary and Prayer in the Night. The topic, Evangelical Identity in Global Context. Today's conversation is brought to you by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a ministry-focused national insurance provider located in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Watch their webinar, Church Security, Four Major Questions in 2021, on demand by visiting brotherhoodmutual.com and searching webinars. And now, let's join in. I'm Walter Kim, here with Tish Harrison Warren. Tish is a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. She is the author of The Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, and more recently, Prayers in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. She has worked in ministry settings for over a decade as an InterVarsity campus minister, an associate rector, and a writer in residence. Through various churches and nonprofits, Tish has worked with addicts and those in poverty. She's a monthly columnist with Christianity Today, and her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Religious News Service, Comet Magazine, and elsewhere. I've personally so appreciated Tish's writing and thoughtful cultural and spiritual analysis. So I'm really delighted to have you join us today. Thank you, Tish. Thank you so much for having me. So to begin, I'm curious, how did you find a home in the Anglican Church in North America? And, and how did you grow into this calling as a writing writer, speaker, and church leader? Yeah, well, that one question could take the whole half hour. So I should, uh, it's going to be hard to make short enough. But I, I grew up um, Southern Baptist, really had no concept of liturgy or um, any, any kind of notion of like um, the ancient church or, or broader Christian tradition. Um, but I took my faith seriously. I cared about um, my relationship with Jesus. And um, in college, I kind of started asking a lot of theological questions, had a pretty profound encounter with the idea of grace, the doctrines of grace. I, I knew Jesus before but I, um, my, the concept of my own sinfulness was more theoretical ascent. <laughs> I was a good kid and, and I, and I, there were sort of three or four big sins in my youth group. Right. And I, I didn't do any of those. I didn't get drunk or, you know, have sex or so sinfulness was kind of a, was an abstract idea for me as a theoretical concept. So kind of through college and growing up and encountering myself as a re, as an actual sinner. And I um, learned about grace and sort of through that, I ended up going to a Presbyterian church for a while. I, um, yeah, I, I would have become more like reformed uh, and, and, but it was really sort of, after seminary, we, I didn't mean to become Anglican. It was kind of an accident. I was actually looking for a Presbyterian church near us for various reasons. Um, we couldn't find one. And it was in this gap year of, of my life. My husband and I, my husband was applying for PhD programs. So we knew we weren't going to be in Austin long. And so we just had to find a church quickly. And so there was this sweet 
Episcopal Evangelical Church, um, small church that was that we connected with, and um, so we just said, okay, we're gonna go for nine months um, until you get in your program and we move, and we're not, and and then we'll just go back to the Presbyterian Church. And uh, but long story short, we just fell in love. It ruined us. I mean, I I completely fell in love with the liturgy and with weekly Eucharist and with the um, book of, uh, with the prayer book and um, with the kind of way Anglicans worship and and think about the world even and uh, so I we I was just I was kind of ruined by that experience for and we tried to go back to other churches and we we just ended up Anglican how I became a writer I was doing campus ministry and um a friend of mine had was running InterVarsity's um, The Well, which is a blog for an online magazine for women in the academy and professions. And she asked me to write for it. And I did. And she said, oh, you, you really have a voice. You're a great writer. Keep writing for me. Keep writing for me. And I was a young mom and very busy in ministry, did not really think I'm going to be a writer. So I never really expected this to be my career. So I ignored her mostly. And she kept sort of like calling and asking, pestering me in the best, most loving way um, to write for her. And so I, I did, I wrote for her and then it, um, some things I wrote just started going viral um, and getting a lot of attention. And then from that, I connected, Andy Crouch found my writing and invited me to write for Christianity Today. And so I, I pitched for Christianity Today and started writing for them more and more regularly. And then it all just sort of grew from there. The more I wrote, the more people asked me to write. And um, I mean, it, it, it continues just to grow. So um, that it was sort of, again, it was a little bit of an accident as well. So, yeah. So interesting how the providence of God can work, that you are an accidental Anglican. I'm going to remember <laughs> that. <laughs> But, but you mentioned uh, Christianity Today, and you're writing for Christianity Today. And so I, I want to turn to that. Uh, you had written a column uh, recently, Why I Claim the Global Evangelical Label. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot that's being said about American evangelicalism in the media and elsewhere. And so I think that it's really useful for us to get away from a bit of the navel-gazing mm -hmm. uh, and to ask the broader set of questions. Let's begin. How do you even think of evangelicalism? Yeah, that's a great question. So as you know, evangelicalism as a, a term even has come under lots of scrutiny and fire lately. And should people call themselves evangelicals or not? And should we use that term? I don't have like a, a I don't have a ton of stock in that argument in one way or the other. I don't, as I mean, I don't have much of a dog in that fight what's it but that said i care about the distinctive ideas of evangelicalism and um and i care about evangelicalism as a historic and global movement i am not it so there's a lot of different ways obviously we could talk about evangelicalism we could talk about bebbington's um quadrilateral that, you know, having 
Christocentrism, a sense of convert, you know, a need for conversion, uh, um, focus on the scriptures and, and activism, all of that I've been deeply shaped by. So that's kind of the theologically how I connect with this. I mean, we could also, of course, talk about it as um, a historic movement, right? That came out of the Reformation and um, uh, we even in America, we could talk about it as a, you know, <laughs> and some, sometimes evangelicalism has just been not Catholic, not mainline and not fundamentalist, right? And so it's sort of been defined by what it's not as much as what it is. So it's hard to even sort of get, get our arms around um, because it can mean such different things to different folks. Um, and then of course there's the political connotations of it. And even, and I do think this is an important part of the conversation, even this use as a marketing term, which I think more and more, and, and even in history has been, so I don't really care about evangelicalism as a marketing movement, right? If it's mostly about selling books and selling, you know, rock concerts. Um, but um, what I will say though, is that when I see um, brothers and sisters in Africa and South America and Asia, who may speak different languages than I do and worship in different ways, um, there is, there are things that tie it to the American evangelical movement, like a focus on scripture, like um, wanting folks to know Jesus and, and to share our faith both in word and in deed um, through, through actions and activities and also through like the verbal sharing of the gospel. Um, and so I connect with those folks, you know, and so, I mean, I've joked on some level, like, I mean, this is kind of a joke, but sort of not is like, even if I decided tomorrow, I'm not, I won't call myself an evangelical anymore because of, because of, you know, disagreeing with the way that's been politicized in the United States context. Um, I still like, can't sing how great is our God without raising my hands and closing my eyes and worship, right? Like I look like an evangelical. I worship like an evangelical. I've been shaped by evangelicalism. So whatever kind of intellectually, however we want to dice this, I could say, okay, well then I'm in, if you define evangelicalism in this way um, by let's say American GOP politics or um, a certain, like, you know, um, with Jesus and John Wayne, the, the book um, by uh, Kristen uh, Dumay, that uh, if it's, you know, defined by a certain kind of like understanding of masculinity, okay, then I'm not an evangelical. But the fact is, is if you like followed me around, it would be very clear that the evangelical movement has like profoundly shaped my piety, my prayer, my relationship with God. So I still call myself an evangelical um, because it just feels honest. It feels like, uh, you know, this has shaped me and shaped the way I connect with Jesus. But I do often feel like I'm much more connected to, for instance, British evangelicalism than I am American in that it, the politics of that, the way they sort of understand the world, um, the 
a lot of the American fights we have about evangelicalism are really intramural and they don't even sort of make sense in a global sense. Um, it, particularly because I'm an Anglican and we have such a connection to the Southern, to the church in the South and Africa and Asia in particular. Um, I, I find the, I find it close to me is what I'm saying. I, I, this, this affects my life. This affects my prayers. I love, for instance, using the Kenyan liturgy. Um, so I, I have been affected by global evangelicalism. It certainly doesn't mean I agree with every single thing that is part of global evangelicalism or that, you know, that people in Africa say about, about Jesus or the world or ethics. Um, but it just means that that's where I find, I, I certainly identify with um, the movement across the world in ways that define me and that are undeniable. And that also um, I identify with more than I would an American who isn't necessarily a believer, but might speak the same language or maybe even be on my street, right? Then than I do with um, someone who would consider themselves an evangelical and be in, um, you know, Uganda or um, Nigeria or something. One of the first events I attended as uh, president of the NAE was the World Evangelical Alliance, uh, which gathered in Jakarta, Indonesia. And it was such a illuminating experience. I was struck by the vibrancy, the interconnectedness of global evangelicalism, the evangelicalism that you're describing. And you've given us a couple of snippets, uh, whether it's you know using uh, liturgy from Africa or your reference to British evangelicalism. I'd like to tease something out a little bit more. Um, so how can American evangelicals become more globally minded, uh, particularly if they're not in a tradition uh, that, like yours, is naturally connected in these global ways. What, what are some practical steps? Mm -hmm. And then what are the benefits uh, that would motivate us to take those practical steps as American evangelicals to be more globally minded? Yeah. I mean, some of the... Um practical steps would be knowing actual global evangelicals. I mean, <laughs> getting, getting in places where you can meet folks. I mean, I understand that's harder for some folks. We're not, we, most of us aren't going to go to Jakarta to the global evangelical conference, but um, certainly you can, you can, you can read John Stott, right? British evangelical. You can, um, uh, I read, I'm reading slowly over the last year, uh, a biography of um, uh, Ben Kwashi, the, he's a Nigerian bishop. Um, and uh, I, I'm not going to meet him, but I can read about him and, um, and learn a little more of his life. Um, I, my church in, in, Pennsylvania had in Pittsburgh had a relationship, a pretty close relationship with, um, with the, they were actually from Singapore, but they were church planners in Thailand. So, um, 
so uh, this mission in Thailand that and and um, church planners and and Anglican Christians over there. So I never went to Thailand, but the church would bring um, uh, the pastor and leaders from Thai churches over to speak at our um, parish retreat, our weekend getaway, which was a great way to kind of get exposed the congregation to um, global evangelicalism, right? Is actually like hire global evangelicals to come be your speakers. Um, it's a little more of a plane ticket, but we could do it, right? It was it was only once every couple of years. So um, the other thing, this is not particularly focused on evangelicalism per se, but I think it's very helpful. I mean, like one simple step would be start getting news from places that are around the world. Like get your American news from the BBC, get your, um, listen to, I mean, the, there's, um, you can, get online and get, and hear news from other places, Al Jazeera, BBC, those are in particular the places I have looked, but um, it's very interesting that the way even that folks outside of America tell the news of America um, and, um, and then ask questions, right? I mean, um, it's, uh, if you know folks who are from non-American spaces, like just be really curious about what the church looks like from their eyes and, and, and be intentional to ask questions. One of the most interesting things I did, this was actually on Twitter, which is, is not the probably best way to learn about global evangelicalism. So I'm not necessarily, um, uh, you know, saying you have to do this online, but I did right before the election, like, I just want to hear from Christians, and I don't know if I said evangelicals and evangelicals in particular, but Christians in other countries, what does this look like from from your perspective? What's the church missing here with it in in this conversation about the upcoming election? What what are our blind spots? What are things that you feel like, um, as an outsider looking in, um, make don't make sense or are really interesting? And it was just fascinating to see people's responses and answers. So part of it is just having the humility and curiosity to be interested in these other perspectives. Um, and um, yeah, and ask questions and, and read and learn as you can. Um, Tish, you've brought up two issues in this recent response just now that uh, I, I want to highlight. One is um, the need to get information outside of your natural tribe um, or natural setting, and then Twitter, social media. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a time when people can be more connected than ever uh, to others around the world, uh, data actually shows that we're more polarized than ever, and we tend yeah. to file into our own silos uh, with our own people, our own tribe. What role does social media play in this? <laughs> okay. Uh, it's interesting you ask this because I feel like in my own life, I'm going, I'm, I'm sort of trying to begin a, a social media purge in ways because it's, um, 
as a writer and as a columnist, it's, it's a place that I sort of have to be in. Um, but I am really concerned about it. And I am, I'm increasingly concerned. I'm more and more concerned about it um, as time goes on. And uh, Jonathan Haidt, who is a sociologist, uh, um, I'm sorry, a psychologist, uh, and is, I think he was at UVA at one point, I don't know where he is now, but um, he said uh, in an interview recently that if he, if he could, um, if, if he was employed, if someone, if he got a grant from the government or something, um, or to figure out a way to destroy democracy, he could not do much better than Twitter. That, <laughs> that, um, it's, that it is, it seems designed to, to harm discourse, right? To harm a pluralistic society. And part of it is the sorting that you're talking about. And I think that then you, we sort and then you can completely demonize the other side um, uh, because it's much harder to demonize someone if, you're, if they're your neighbor, if you know them, if you can see them, if you, if you say, okay, well, we disagree on politics, but I can see this as a really good mother or really, you know, he keeps his, you know, um, house really tidy and, you know, picks up trash in the neighborhood or whatever. I think I'm saying if you see a person as a whole human, it's harder to demonize them. Um, whereas if you just sort of come on this, this, this platform, this media, where we mostly um, talk about politics and faith and controversial issues, there's no, there's no other, there's no humanizing of, of your enemies. And so I think we do get, we get more and more um, enraged and despairing. Uh, there's all kinds of, I mean, just study after study shows that large doses of exposure to social media lead to greater um, instances of depression. So there's something disembodied, kind of the the worst kind of gnostic um, sense of that that ideas are really disconnected from bodies and relationships that I I find harmful. I mean, this is nothing new. I feel like uh, you could just at this point like throw a dart and you'll hit some kind of thinker, you know, telling us that the world is ending because the internet. I join their ranks. I am concerned the world is ending because the internet. Um, that said, I mean, I, I, it is, it does connect us globally in a, in a profound way that's, that's good. Um, and I'm not saying no one has ever been affected by the internet in positive ways, but I think that overall the damage has, has been very great. And, um, and, and we are more sorted. So I guess, I mean, part of what I think the, that we need is, is localism and, and human beings sitting around actual tables together. I know that's hard to say during COVID, um, but I do think we have to kind of press in to actual and embodied relationships and, um, and in, in really important ways. 
I know that that I just talked about being connected to global evangelicalism, but I also, I mean, I ultimately think um, that like the healing of the world will begin on a local level. It'll be on a small level. So when I say global evangelicalism, I essentially mean that I use this term evangelical not because of the American conversation about it, but because this is a global movement um, that actually, if we connect with, should um, should make us sort of question a lot of the terms of American evangelicalism. Most global evangelicals make no distinction between what uh, we would call social justice and and evangelism or biblical fidelity, like the, those break down in, in other cultures. So I'm saying connecting to this culture to the extent that it makes you sort of question the presuppositions of American evangelicalism. I don't mean connecting with this culture that in the sense that we're so, we're so global that we are no longer local. Cause I think we are the, as a Christian, you, you join yourself to the church of of Jesus. And so you are connected to all Christians globally and historically, but the only way into that is through a local body. Uh, That that's a grand idea, but what that actually looks like, our global historical connection with the church actually looks like showing up and being part of a limited people um, on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night, or, you know, at a prayer meeting. So I, I think we need, I, I do not think social media is bad, but I think we need much less of it and we need to be really disciplined with how we approach it because it is, it's corrosive for sure. And it's corrosive to local communities um, in, what, in, in really the precise way that we need right now. We, we need local communities. We need um, kind of being able to, um, know our neighbors again. Um, and even if our neighbors aren't our best friends to be a good neighbor, um, and social media makes that difficult for me. I mean, saying this, even personally having, I weekly have to navigate how to use these tools in my life, knowing that they're not neutral tools. I mean, every tool we use works back on us and social media is certainly, whether we want it to be or not, it is a spiritual practice and that it shapes our spiritual life. So I have to constantly wrestle with this and ask questions about how I'm using it. You talk about corrosive effects. You talk about challenges within a democratic society in um, the ways that we hold conversation on very difficult issues. And certainly over the past uh, few decades, there have been major cultural shifts uh, in our society uh, around sexuality, gender, religion in the public square. And I believe you were serving with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Vanderbilt uh, when the university made a policy change for student groups that Mm -hmm. challenged, rubbed against the biblical understanding of sexuality and marriage. Uh, What was that experience like? What, What did you learn about being a gospel witness in a culture that doesn't always understand or accept uh, Christian values. Yeah. Yes. So in um, this was 2011 and 12 and my campus ministry group, along with um, 
I think, so I think it was 11 or 12 campus ministries where it ended up um, removed. We lost our on-campus um, registration status. We remo removed from campus um, because um, we required our leaders to have, to affirm Christian beliefs. Um, Christian sort of creedal doctrinal beliefs. So it was an interesting time. I, I, I grew up in the 90s around Austin. So I knew there were kind of culture warriors on, um, on the right, right? That's kind of like, we're gonna take America back for Jesus kind of stuff. Um, and, and I was very skeptical of that actually. Um, but I hadn't encountered a lot of kind of culture warriors on the left. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but that's the honest, that's honest. And, and that was all of a sudden a, a giant encounter with that of realizing like, oh, this is not like live and let live. Like this really is um, a, uh, the, this is a intentional desire to, to squelch uh, pluralism, to squelch like actual meaningful dissent. Um, and um, so here's what I learned though. It wasn't that therefore I learned there's culture warriors on the left, so we need to, you know, retreat at, or um, be really vitriolic and angry and um, defend the right. I, I learned that they're both um, they're both motivated by a lot of the same thing, which is fear. But I'm saying both sides of the culture wars are, are motivated by fear, are motivated by um, power, are motivated by um, the deep, deep worry that they will, that their side will be marginalized or that they will be um, unwelcomed uh, and, um, and they both have a strong sense of their own rightness and justice. Now, I'm not saying they're equal. I'm not saying like both sides are equal or both sides are right. I am saying though, that I think the impulse on the left to make things more open to, to um, groups that have been historically marginalized, I think is touching something good and true and even biblical. And the impulse on the right to defend religious liberty and to have like uh, allow people to have traditional beliefs and traditions that in culture that are are, are greater than just the sort of american democratic uh, uh, um tradition around equity is is also good and biblical and true so i'm saying there's impulses on both sides that are that are good but it, taking that impulse and then coupling it with a lot of fear, with a lot of sort of demonization of the other side and with a, a quest for um, shoring up our own power, it really brings out the worst, um, both in the church and in the secular world. It, it makes it where folks can't sit down and have a conversation with one another. So I constantly, along with my, my other colleagues, um, that year who I walked through, we inter I was with InterVarsity, but we met with folks from crew and um, navigators and FCA. There was a group of us that, that prayed together 
throughout the year. Um, and got, I love those folks. I mean, I feel like I kind of went through a little bit of a war with them. So we got close and I, um, we, we got close through that year. And I think all of us often felt um, misrepresented in the larger like national news story conversation that was happening around this events at Vanderbilt. And we also felt really torn in that these were real, we loved the campus. Like we actually cared and were invested and these were real people that we loved. And so um, the, it felt like this was kind of a volleyball, a culture war vo volleyball. And in the middle of that, there were like real human beings that we cared about. And um, this goes back a little bit to the localism thing is that it could easily become abstracted. Um, and I mean, honestly, like we lost, like we, we left campus at the end. And um, yet I really deeply believe that God is still at work at Vanderbilt and God is still pursuing people. And I know campus ministers there that I am still connected with who are seeing beautiful things and good fruit. And so um, this is a lesson I think to Christians in America as well is that I think we can be really afraid of losing any battle, right? Like losing any ground. And I certainly think of course, like let's advocate for um, religious liberty. Let's advocate for uh, the rights of, of folks who uphold traditional marriage and to have schools and to have churches and to um, have nonprofit organizations that reflect that. And yet I think um, we're so afraid of losing any cultural power. We're so afraid of losing battles. Um, and really what we need to be afraid of is being unfaithful, right? Cause I think what I'm saying, what I saw that year is, um, is that, you know, you can lose some battles, but what mattered, what mattered ultimately in that is the, is Christians conducting themselves in a way that reflected the truth of Jesus. And so I just would say more and more with pluralism, I mean, we, there's been so much said, right, about religious liberty and about how to engage culture and do we, you know, all there was, this, this is a few years back, but there's all the different options, right? The Benedict option. And there was like the Jeremiah option and the David option and all the options. And um, I'll just say from living that year, what I found is that when um, Christians need to know how to respond to rejection and to fear and to marginalization um not it, it, to respond to that not out of despair or anger um or retribution so we we need christian practices even that allow us to respond to a sense of rejection um or fear of rejection with truth with grace out of out of a deep sense of love um because it's natural when you feel pushed to want to push back right and but i think that that's creating a christian community that is angry that's marked by anger that's marked by um cruelty even um 
that's marked by kind of using politics or anything else as a means to an an end, uh, or, or, or I'm sorry, that the, the, the end justifies the means. Um, and so just walking through that year, I would say it was a profound experience of discipleship, even for our students, e even for the students who are losing their on-campus status, but to have to learn, how do we love the folks who don't understand us? How do I, how do we present the gospel in the midst of this in ways that are not, um, that that don't hide the ball, that they're like deeply honest, that are full of conviction, but yet are humble and yet are um, joyful even. And so uh, I, I just think that um, for, for me, I'm less interested in kind of the cultural strategy that's gonna make us win. And I'm more interested in what it means to be a faithful community because I, I've seen us lose and I, it's not the end of the world. Like God is still working. Um, and the discipleship of my students in the middle of that was profound and was, was good, sent them out into the world in beautiful ways. As we uh, draw this conversation to a close, I want to pick up on um, some of the themes that you've mentioned that are just common human themes uh, responses to fears, desire for love, uh, uh, seeking for a place in this world. And, and so um, as we draw to a close, I want to point to um, our attention to the book that you had recently written, Prayers in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep, which explores these themes of human vulnerability, of suffering, of, of God's apparent absence, uh, if you were to encapsulate a lesson from this book for our cultural moment, the, the common struggles that we have with fear and love and a desire for presence, God's presence, and how do we find that in moments where God appears absent? Uh, what's something from this work that you've done um, in this book that you would give as a, a final word of uh, encouragement, or maybe even challenge for us? Yeah. Um, well, the book is sort of looking at how do we continue to trust God when God makes no guarantee that bad things will not happen to us? Um, so I guess um, the, I guess if there's like I'm not going to give away the answer of the book. <laughs> like, you should buy the book because it's kind of a long, it's a, it's a long, it's me struggling through all these questions. But I will say that like the ultimate hope of how we respond to our vulnerability, and this is vulnerability that comes from mortality, that comes from living in a world um, where darkness is very real. Uh, certainly the book was written before COVID, but certainly we're all feeling this right now with COVID. But also I would say our vulnerability sometimes that we feel as evangelicals and our cultural vulnerability, right? Of, of, that we're talking about, about marginalization and what I experienced on campus is that um, our hope can't be that everything's gonna work out for us because we know that that may not be true. Uh, and our hope can't be that we're going to beat it, that we're going to get enough kind of power, privilege to make everything go well for the church or make everything go well for our family or our children. Um, the hope 
really must be rooted in the love of God and the fact that in all of our suffering, we, God meets us um, in our suffering, but also we meet God. We are, we join in the sufferings of Jesus and somehow mysteriously are taken up into the life of God through our suffering. Truly, truly, we have a risen Lord that really, really is going to make all things new. Um, and when I see the church in America, when I see America in general, even outside the church, just Americans, we tend to be people deeply marked by fear. And I feel like the church, the church can offer a unique witness against that by being a people of courage. But the courage is not going to be that things are going to work out for us. The courage has to be rooted in the person of Jesus and that um, in this world we will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. So I just want to see in the in a world of fear what it would be to be truly an alternative community that's full of good cheer, that we're cheerful. Um, not in kind of a saccharine way that denies that there's deep darkness in the world, but in a way that absolutely admits the brokenness and the darkness of the world. And yet our cheer is that Jesus has overcome the world. Our guest on today's conversation has been Tish Harrison Warren, Anglican priest and author of The Liturgy of the Ordinary and Prayers in the Night. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Tish. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.